Chapter thirty seven of Varney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Varney the Vampire, Volume One, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter thirty seven. Sir Francis Varney's Separate Opponents. THE INTERPOSITION OF FLORA The old admiral so completely overcame the family of the Bannerworths by his generosity and evident single-mindedness of his behavior, that although not one, except Flora, approved of his conduct towards Mr. Marchdale, yet they could not help liking him, and had they been placed in a position to choose which of the two they would have had remain with them, the admiral or Marchdale, there can be no question they would have made choice of the former. Still, however, it was not pleasant to find a man like Marchdale virtually driven from the house, because he presumed to differ in opinion upon a very doubtful matter with another of its inmates. But, as it was the nature of the Bannerworth family always to incline to the most generous view of subjects, the frank, hearty confidence of the old admiral in Charles Holland pleased them better than the calm and serious doubting of Marchdale. His ruse of hiring the house of them and paying the rent in advance for the purpose of placing ample funds in their hands for any contingency was not the less amiable because it was so easily seen through, and they could not make up their minds to hurt the feelings of the old man by the rejection of his generous offer. When he had left, this subject was canvassed among them, and it was agreed that he should have his own way in the matter for the present, although they hoped to hear something from Marchdale which would make his departure appear less abrupt and uncomfortable to the whole of the family. During the course of this conversation, it was made known to Flora with more distinctness than under any other circumstances it would have been, that Charles Holland had been on the eve of a duel with Sir Francis Varney previous to his mysterious disappearance. When she became fully aware of this fact, to her mind it seemed materially to add to the suspicions previously to them entertained that foul means had been used in order to put Charles out of the way. "'Who knows,' she said, "'that this Varney may not shrink with the greatest terror from a conflict with any human being, and feeling one was inevitable with Charles Holland, unless interrupted by some vigorous act of his own, he or some myrmidons of his may have taken Charles's life.' "'I do not think, Flora,' said Henry, "'that he would have ventured upon so desperate an act. I cannot well believe such a thing possible, but fear not. He will find, if he have really committed any such atrocity, that it will not save him. These words of Henry, though it made no impression at the time upon Flora, beyond what they carried upon their surface, they really, however, as concerned Henry himself, implied a settled resolution which he immediately set about reducing to practice. When the conference broke up, night, as it still was, he, without saying anything to anyone, took his hat and cloak and left the hall, proceeding by the nearest practicable route to the residence of Sir Francis Varney, where he arrived without any interruption of any character. Varney was at first denied to him, but before he could leave the house, a servant came down the great staircase to say it was a mistake, and that Sir Francis was at home and would be happy to see him. He was ushered into the same apartment where Sir Francis Varney had before received his visitors, 
and there sat the now-declared vampire, looking pale and ghastly by the dim light which burned in the apartment, and indeed more like some specter of the tomb than one of the great family of man. "'Be seated, sir,' said Varney. "'Although my eyes have seldom the pleasure of beholding you within these walls, be assured you are an honored guest.' "'Sir Francis Varney,' said Henry, "'I came not here to bandy compliments with you. I have none to pay to you, nor do I wish to hear any of them from your lips.' "'An excellent sentiment, young man,' said Varney, "'and well delivered. "'May I presume, then, without infringing too far upon your extreme courtesy, "'to inquire to what circumstances I am indebted for your visit?' "'To one, Sir Francis, that I believe you are better acquainted with "'than you have the candor to admit.' "'Indeed, sir,' said Varney, coldly, "'you measure my candor probably by a standard of your own in which case I fear I may be no gainer, and yet that may be of itself a circumstance that should afford little food for surprise. But proceed, sir. Since we have so few compliments to stand between us and our purpose, we shall in all due time arrive at it. Yes, in due time, Sir Francis Varney, and that due time has arrived. Know you anything of my friend Charles Holland? said Henry, in marked accents and he gazed on Sir Francis Varney with earnestness that seemed to say not even a look should escape his observation. Varney, however, returned the gaze as steadily, but coldly, as he replied in his measured accents, I have heard of the young gentleman. And seen him? And seen him, too, as you, Mr. Bannerworth, must be well aware. Surely you have not come all this way merely to make such an inquiry. But, sir, you are welcome to the answer. Henry had something of a struggle to keep down the rising anger at these cool taunts of Varney, but he succeeded, and then he said, I suspect Charles Holland, Sir Francis Varney, has met with unfair treatment, and that he has been unfairly dealt with, for an unworthy purpose. Undoubtedly, said Varney, if the gentleman you allude to has been unfairly dealt with, it was for a foul purpose. For no good or generous object, my young sir, could be so obtained. You acknowledge so much, I doubt not. I do, Sir Francis Varney, and hence the purpose of my visit here. For this reason I apply to you. A singular object, supported by a singular reason. I cannot see the connection, young sir. Pray, proceed to enlighten me upon this matter, and when you have done that, may I presume, upon your consideration, to inquire in what way I can be of any service to you? Sir Francis, said Henry, his anger raising his tones, this will not serve you. I have come to exact an account of how you have disposed of my friend, and I will have it. Gently, my good sir, you are aware I know nothing of your friend. His motions are his own, and as to what I have done with him, my only answer is that he would permit me to do nothing with him had I been so inclined to have taken the liberty. You are suspected, Sir Francis Varney, of having made an attempt upon the life or liberty of Charles Holland. You, in fact, are suspected of being his murderer, and so help me heaven, if I have not justice, I will have vengeance. Young sir, 
Your words are of grave import, and ought to be coolly considered before they are uttered. With regard to justice and vengeance, Mr. Bannerworth, you may have both. But I tell you, of Charles Holland, or what has become of him, I know nothing. But wherefore do you come to so unlikely a quarter to learn something of an individual of whom I know nothing? Because Charles Holland was to have fought a duel with you, but before that had time to take place, he has suddenly become missing. I suspect that you are the author of his disappearance, because you fear an encounter with a mortal man. Mr. Bannerworth, permit me to say, in my own defense, that I do not fear any man, however foolish he may be, and wisdom is not an attribute I find, from experience in all men, of your friend. However, you must be dreaming, sir. A kind of vivid insanity has taken possession of your mind, which distorts... Sir Francis Varney, exclaimed Henry, now perfectly uncontrollable. Sir, said Varney, as he filled up the pause, proceed. I am all attention. You do me honor. If, resumed Henry, such was your object in putting Mr. Holland aside, by becoming personally or by proxy an assassin... You are mistaken in supposing you have accomplished your object. Go on, sir, said Sir Francis Varney, in a bland and sweet tone. I am all attention. Pray proceed. You have failed, for I now here, on this spot, defy you to mortal combat. Coward, assassin as you are, I challenge you to fight. You don't mean on the carpet here, said Varney deliberately. No, sir, but beneath the canopy of heaven, in the light of day. And then, Sir Francis, we shall see who will shrink from the conflict. It is remarkably good, Mr. Bannerworth, and begging your pardon, for I do not wish to give any offense, my honored sir, it would rehearse before an audience. In short, sir, it is highly dramatic. You shrink from the combat, do you? Now, indeed, I know you. "'Young man, young man,' said Sir Francis, calmly, and shaking his head very deliberately, and the shadows passed across his pale face, "'you know me not, if you think Sir Francis Varney shrinks from any man, much less one like yourself. "'You are a coward, and worse, if you refuse my challenge.' "'I do not refuse it. I accept it,' said Varney, calmly and in a dignified manner. And then, with a sneer, he added, You are well acquainted with the mode in which gentlemen generally manage these matters, Mr. Bannerworth, and perhaps I am somewhat confined in my knowledge in the ways of the world, because you are your own principal and second. In all my experience, I never met with a similar case. The circumstances under which it is given are as unexampled, and will excuse the mode of the challenge, said Henry with much warmth. Singular coincidence. The challenge and mode of it is most singular. They are well matched in that respect. Singular, did I say? The more I think of it, Mr. Bannerworth, the more I am inclined to think this positively odd. Early tomorrow, Sir Francis, you shall hear from me. In that case, you will not arrange preliminaries now? Well... Well, it is very unusual for the principals themselves to do so, and yet, excuse my freedom, 
I presumed, as you had so far deserted the beaten track, that I had no idea how far you might be disposed to lead the same route. I have said all I intended to say, Sir Francis Varney. We shall see each other again. I may not detain you, I presume, to taste aught in the way of refreshment? Henry made no reply, but turned towards the door without even making an attempt to return the grave and formal bow that Sir Francis Varney made as he saw him about to quit the apartment, for Henry saw that his pale features were lighted up with a sarcastic smile, most disagreeable to look upon, as well as irritating to Henry Bannerworth. He now quitted Sir Francis Varney's abode, being led out by a servant who had been rung for for that purpose by his master. Henry walked homeward, satisfied that he had now done all that he could under the circumstances. I will send Chillingworth to him in the morning, and then I shall see what all this will end in. He must meet me, and then Charles Holland, if not discovered, shall be at least revenged. There was another person in Bannerworth Hall who had formed a similar resolution. That person was a very different sort of person to Henry Bannerworth, though quite as estimable in his way. This was no other than the old admiral. It was singular that two such very different persons should deem the same steps necessary, and both keep the secret from each other. But so it was, and after some internal swearing, he determined upon challenging Varney in person. I'd send Jack Pringle but the swab would settle the matter as shortly as if a youngster was making an entry in a log and heard the boatswain's whistle summoning the hands to a mess and feared he would lose his grog. Damn my quarters! But Sir Francis Varney, as he styles himself, shan't make any way against old Admiral Bell. He's as tough as a hawser, and just the sort of blade for a vampire to come athwart. I'll pitch him in long and make a plank of him afore long. Cuss my windpipe. What a long, lanky swab he is, with teeth fit to unpick a splice. But let me alone. I'll see if I can't make a hull of his carcass, vampire or no vampire. My nevy, Charles Holland, can't be allowed to cut away without nobody's leave or license. No. No, I'll not stand that anyhow. Never desert a messmate in the time of need is the first maxim of a seaman, and I ain't the one as'll do so. Thus self-communing, the old admiral marched along, until he came to Sir Francis Varney's house, at the gate of which he gave the bell what he called a long pull, a strong pull, and a pull altogether that set it ringing with a fury, the like of which had never certainly been heard by the household. A minute or two scarcely elapsed before the domestics hurried to answer so urgent a summons, and when the gate was opened, the servant who answered it inquired his business. "'What's that to you, snob? Is your master, Sir Francis Varney, in? Because if he be, let him know old Admiral Bell wants to speak to him. Do you hear?' "'Yes, sir.' replied the servant, who had paused a few moments to examine the individual who gave this odd kind of address. In another minute, word was brought to him that Sir Francis Varney would be very happy to see Admiral Bell. "'Aye, aye,' he muttered, "'just as the devil likes to meet with holy water. 
Or as I like any water save salt water. He was speedily introduced to Sir Francis Varney, who was seated in the same posture as he had been left by Henry Bannerworth not many minutes before. Admiral Bell, said Sir Francis, rising and bowing to that individual in the most polite, calm, and dignified manner imaginable. Permit me to express the honor I feel at this unexpected visit. None of your gammon. Will you be seated? Allow me to offer you such refreshments as this poor house affords. Damn all this. You know, Sir Francis, I don't want none of this palaver. It's for all the world like a Frenchman when you're going to give him a broadside. He makes grimaces, throws dust in your eyes, and tries to stab you in the back. Oh, no, none of that for me. I should say not, Admiral Bell. I should not like it myself. And I dare say you are a man of too much experience not to perceive when you are or are not imposed upon. Well, what is that to you? Damn me, I didn't come here to talk to you about myself. Then may I presume upon your courtesy so far as to beg that you will enlighten me upon the object of your visit? Yes, in pretty quick time. Just tell me where you have stowed away my nephew, Charles Holland. Really, I... Hold your slack, will you, and hear me out. If he's living, let him out, and I'll say no more about it. That's liberal, you know. It ain't terms everybody would offer you. I must, in truth, admit they are not. And moreover, they quite surprise even me. And I have learned not to be surprised at almost anything. Well, will you give him up alive? But, hark ye, you mustn't have made very queer fish of him, do you see? I hear you, said Sir Francis, with a bland smile, passing one hand gently over the other and showing his front teeth in a peculiar manner. But I really cannot comprehend all this. But I may say, generally, that Mr. Holland is no acquaintance of mine, and I have no sort of knowledge where he may be. That won't do for me said the admiral positively shaking his head i am particularly sorry admiral bell that it will not seeing that i have nothing else to say i see how it is you've put him out of the way and i'm damned if you shan't bring him to life whole and sound or i'll know the reason why with that i have already furnished you admiral bell quietly rejoined varney anything more in that head is out of my power although my willingness to oblige a person of such consideration as yourself is very great. But permit me to add, this is a very strange and odd communication from one gentleman to another. You have lost a relative who has very probably taken some offense, or some notion into his head, of which nobody but himself knows anything, and you come to one yet more unlikely to know anything of him than even yourself. Gammon again now, Sir Francis Varney, or Blarney. Varney, if you please, Admiral Bell. I was christened Varney. Christened, eh? Yes, christened. Were you not christened? If not, I dare say you understand the ceremony well enough. I should think I did. But as for christening, uh... Go on, sir. A vampire. 
why I should as soon think of reading the burial service of a pig. Very possible. But what has all this to do with your visit to me? This much, you lover. Now damn my carcass from head to stern if I don't call you out. Well, Admiral Bell, said Varney mildly, in that case I suppose I must come out. But why do you insist that I have any knowledge of your nephew, Mr. Charles Holland? You were to have fought a duel with him, and now he's gone. I am here, said Varney. Aye, said the admiral. That's as plain as a purser's shirt upon a handspike. But that's the very reason why my nevy ain't here, and that's all about it. And that's marvelous little, so far as the sense is concerned said Varney, without the movement of a muscle. It is said that people of your class don't like fighting mortal men. Now you have disposed of him, lest he should dispose of you. That is explicit, but it is to no purpose, since the gentleman in question hasn't placed himself at my disposal. Then damn ye, I will. Fish, flesh, or fowl, I don't care. All's one to Admiral Bell. Come fair or foul, I'm a tar for all men, a seaman ever ready to face a foe. So here goes, you lubberly moon-manufactured calf. I hear, Admiral, but it is scarcely civil, to say the least of it. However, as you are somewhat eccentric, and do not, I dare say, mean all your words imply, I am quite willing to make every allowance. I don't want any allowance. Damn you and your allowance, too. Nothing but allowance of grog, and a pretty good allowance, too, will do for me. And I tell you, Sir Francis Varney, said the Admiral with much wrath, that you are a damn lubberly hound, and I'll fight you. Yes, I'm ready to hammer away, or with anything from a pop-gun to a ship's gun. You don't come over me with your gammon. I tell you, you murdered Charles Holland because you couldn't face him. That's the truth of it. With the other part of your speech, Admiral Bell, allow me to say you have mixed up a serious accusation, one I cannot permit to pass lightly. Will you or not fight? Oh, yes, I shall be happy to serve you any way that I can. I hope this will be an answer to your accusation also. That's settled, then. Why, I am not captious, Admiral Bell but it is not generally usual for the principals to settle the preliminaries themselves. Doubtless you, in your career of fame and glory, know something of the manner in which gentlemen demean themselves on these occasions. Oh, damn you, yes, I'll send someone to do all this. Yes, yes, Jack Pringle will be the man, though Jack ain't a holiday, shore-going, smooth-spoken swab but as good a seaman as ever trod deck or handled a boarding pike. Any friend of yours, said Varney blandly, will be received and treated as such upon an errand of such consequence. And now our conference has, I presume, concluded? Yes, yes, we've done... Damn me, no. Yes. No. I will keelhaul you, but I'll know something of my nevy Charles Holland. Good day, Admiral Bell. As Varney spoke, he placed his hand upon the bell which he had near him to summon an attendant to conduct the Admiral out. The latter, who had said a vast deal more than he ever intended, 
left the room in a great rage, protesting to himself that he would amply avenge his nephew, Charles Holland. He proceeded homeward, considerably vexed and annoyed that he had been treated with so much calmness, and all knowledge of his nephew denied. When he got back, he quarreled heartily with Jack Pringle, made it up, drank grog, quarreled, made it up, and finished with grog again, until he went to bed swearing he should like to fire a broadside at the whole of the French army and annihilate it at once. With this wish, he fell asleep. Early next morning, Henry Bannerworth sought Mr. Chillingworth, and having found him, he said in a serious tone, Mr. Chillingworth, I have rather a serious favor to ask you, and one which you may hesitate in granting. It must be very serious indeed, said Mr. Chillingworth, that I should hesitate to grant it to you, but pray inform me what it is you deem so serious. Sir Francis Varney and I must have a meeting, said Henry. Have you really determined upon such a course, said Mr. Chillingworth? You know the character of your adversary? That is all settled. I have given a challenge, and he has accepted it. So all other considerations verge themselves into one, and that is the when, where, and how. I see, said Mr. Chillingworth. Well, since it cannot be helped on your part, I will do what is requisite for you. Do you wish anything to be done or insisted on in particular in this affair? Nothing with regard to Sir Francis Varney that I may not leave to your discretion. I feel convinced that he is the assassin of Charles Holland, whom he feared to fight in duel. Then there remains but little else to do but to arrange preliminaries, I believe. Are you prepared on every other point? I am. You will see that I am the challenger, and that he must now fight. What accident may turn up to save him, I fear not but sure I am that he will endeavor to take every advantage that may arise, and so escape the encounter. And what do you imagine he will do now he has accepted your challenge? said Mr. Chillingworth. One would imagine he could not very well escape. No, but he accepted the challenge which Charles Holland sent him. A duel was inevitable, and it seems to me to be a necessary consequence that he disappeared from amongst us for Mr. Holland would never have shrunk from the encounter. There can be no sort of suspicion about that, remarked Chillingworth, but allow me to advise you that you take care of yourself, and keep a watchful eye upon everyone. Do not be seen out alone. I fear not. Nay, the gentleman who has disappeared was, I am sure, fearless enough. But yet, that has not saved him. I would not advise you to be fearful only watchful. You have now an event waiting upon you which it is well you should go through with, unless circumstances should so turn out that it is needless. Wherefore, I say, when you have the suspicions you do entertain of this man's conduct, beware, be cautious, and vigilant. I will do so. In the meantime, I trust myself confidently in your hands. You know all that is necessary." This affair is quite a secret from all of the family? Most certainly so, and will remain so. I shall be at the hall. And there I will see you. But be careful not to be drawn into any adventure of any kind. It is best to be on the safe side under all circumstances. 
I will be especially careful, be assured. But farewell. See Sir Francis Varney as early as you can, and let the meeting be as early as you can, and thus diminish the chance of accident. That I will attend to. Farewell for the present. Mr. Chillingworth immediately set about the conducting of the affairs thus confided to him, and that no time might be lost, he determined to set out at once for Sir Francis Varney's residence. Things with regard to this family seem to have gone on wild of late, thought Mr. Chillingworth. This may bring affairs to a conclusion, though I had much rather they had come to some other. My life for it, there is a juggle or a mystery somewhere. I will do this, and then we shall see what will come of it. If this Sir Francis Varney meets him, and at the moment I can see no reason why he should not do so, it will tend to deprive him of the mystery about him. But if, on the other hand, he refuse, but then that's all improbable, because he has agreed to do so. I fear, however, that such a man as Varney is a dreadful enemy to encounter. He is cool and unruffled and that gives him all the advantage in such affairs. But Henry's nerves are not bad, though shaken by these untoward events. But time will show. I would it were all over. With these thoughts and feelings strangely intermixed, Mr. Chillingworth set forward for Sir Francis Varney's house. Admiral Bell slept soundly enough, though towards morning he fell into a strange dream, and thought he was yard-arm and yard-arm with a strange fish, something of the mermaid species. Well, exclaimed the admiral, after a customary benediction of his eyes and limbs, what's to come next? May I be spliced to a shark if I understand what this is all about? I had some grog last night, but then grog, do you see, is a seaman's native element, as the newspapers say, though I never read em now. It's such a plague. He lay quiet for a short time, considering in his own mind what was best to be done, and what was the proper course to pursue, and why he should dream. Hilloa, 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 Jack ahoy, ahoy, shouted the admiral, as a sudden recollection of his challenge came across his memory. Jack Pringle, ahoy! Damn you, where are you? You're never at hand when you are wanted. Oh, you lover! Ahoy! Ahoy! shouted a voice as the door opened, and Jack thrust his head in. What cheer, messmate? What ship is this? Oh, you lubberly! The door was shut in a minute, and Jack Pringle disappeared. Hello, Jack Pringle. You don't mean to say you'll desert your colors, do you, you dumb dog? Who says I'll desert the ship as she's seaworthy? And why do you go away? Because I won't be called lubberly. I'm as good a man as ever swabbed a deck, and don't care who says to the contrary. I'll stick to the ship as long as she's seaworthy, said Jack. Well, come here, and just listen to the log, and be damned to you. What's the orders now, Admiral? said Jack. Though, as we are paid off... There, take that, will you? said Admiral Bell, as he flung a pillow at Jack, being the only thing in the shape of a missile within reach. Jack ducked, and the pillow produced a clatter in the wash-hand stand among the crockery, as Jack said, There's a mutiny in the ship, and hark how the cargo clatters. Will you have it back again? 
Come, will you? I've been dreaming, Jack. Dreaming? What's that? Thinking of something when you're asleep, you swab. Ha, 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 laughed Jack. Never did such a thing in my life. Ha, <laughs> What's the matter now? I'll tell you what's the matter, Jack Pringle. You are becoming mutinous, and I won't have it. If you don't hold your jaw and draw in your slacks, I'll have another second. Another second? What's in the wind now? said Jack. Is this the dream? If ever I dream when I'm alongside a strange craft, then it is a dream. But old Admiral Bell ain't the man to sleep when there's any work to be done. That's uncommon true, said Jack, turning a quid. Well, then, I'm to fight. Fight? exclaimed Jack. Avast there. I don't see. Where's the enemy? None of that, gammon. Jack Pringle can fight, too, and will lay alongside his admiral. But he don't see the enemy anywhere. You don't understand these things, so I'll tell you. I have had a bit of talk with Sir Francis Varney, and I am going to fight him. What? The Wampire? remarked Jack, parenthetically. Yes. Well, then, resumed Jack, then we shall see another blaze, at least afore we die. But he's an odd fish, one of Davy Jones's sort. I don't care about that. He may be anything he likes. But Admiral Bell ain't a-going to have his nephew burned and eaten and sucked like don't know what by a vampire or by any other confounded land shark. In course, said Jack, we ain't a-going to put up with nothing of that sort, and if so be as how he has put him out of the way, why it's our duty to send him arter him and square the board. That's the thing, Jack. Now you know you must go to Sir Francis Varney and tell him you come from me. I don't care if I goes on my own account, said Jack. That won't do. I've challenged him, and I must fight him. In course you will, returned Jack. And if he blows you away, why, I'll take your place and have a blaze myself. The Admiral gave a look at Jack of great admiration, and then said, You are a damn good seaman, Jack. But he's a knight, and might say no to that. But do you go to him and tell him that you come from me to settle the when and the where this duel is to be fought? Single fight? said Jack. Yes, consent to anything that is fair, said the Admiral, but let it be as soon as you can. Now, do you understand what I have said? Yes, to be sure. I ain't lived all these years without knowing your lingo. Then go at once, and don't let the honor of Admiral Bell and Old England suffer, Jack. I'm his man, you know, at any price. Never fear, said Jack. You shall fight him at any rate. I'll go and see he don't back out, though, Warrant. Then go along, Jack, and mind don't you go blazing away like a fire ship and letting everybody know what's going on, or it'll be stopped. I'll not spoil sport said Jack, as he left the room to go at once to Sir Francis Varney, charged with the conducting of the important cartel of the Admiral. Jack made the best of his way with becoming gravity and expedition until he reached the gate of the Admiral's enemy. Jack rang loudly at the gate. There seemed, if one might judge by his countenance, a something on his mind that Jack was 
almost another man. The gate was opened by the servant, who inquired what he wanted there. The Wampire! Who? The Wampire! The servant frowned and was about to say something uncivil to Jack, who looked at him very hard, and then said, Oh, maybe you don't know him, or won't know him by that name. I wants to see Sir Francis Varney. He's at home, said the servant. Who are you? Show me up, then. I'm Jack Pringle, and I'm come from Admiral Bell. I'm the Admiral's friend, you see, so none of your black looks. The servant seemed amazed, as well as rather daunted, at Jack's address. He showed him, however, into the hall where Mr. Chillingworth had just that moment arrived and was waiting for an interview with Varney. End of chapter 37 Recording by Roger Moline